We can go ahead and be seated. I want to invite you to grab a copy of God's Word and begin making your way to John chapter 18. We've been going through uh, the book of John, chapter by chapter. We come to chapter 18 this morning. By the way, whoever ordered the snow this morning, it's a little early in the year for it. Thankfully, most of it's melting. John chapter 18, and as we we make our way into this chapter, uh, the scene really changes. So for a while, we've been in uh, what we call Jesus' farewell discourse. Essentially, chapters 13 through 17, what we've witnessed, what we've studied, is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time in which he would be physically absent. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He knows the cross is around the corner, and so he's getting his disciples ready for that time when he will be crucified, buried, risen, but then ascending to the right hand of the Father. And and what are they going to do? Well, Jesus gives them instructions. He tells them all these wonderful things. He's preparing a place for them. He's, he, he's, he's made a home for them. He's going to send the Spirit to rest upon them and empower them. They won't be alone. He's telling them about the coming persecution. But now the scene changes. No longer are we in the upper room, but now we're in Gethsemane. Jesus finished his instructions, he's, he's finished his intercessory prayer, he's, he's, he's gone to his long prayer where he prays for all the people that the Lord has given to him, but now, now he's walking closer and closer to the cross. And in chapters 18 and 19, the, the events that take place are of the greatest importance because really if they didn't happen, then none of the things promised during Christ's ministry would be possible. I mean, this promise of eternal life, the, the sending of the Holy Spirit, His return, the preparation of eternal place, his, his gracious salvation, and all of these things were dependent upon the way in which Christ died and dependent upon His resurrection. So everything he did in the last few hours was, was validation of the claims that He made. Everything John, everything has built up to this point where, where now everything that Jesus has promised and talked about, all the wonderful things he said, will now come to a climax. Of course, not everybody's interpreted the death of Christ in, in that sort of way. I mean, there's, there's people out there who would, who would say or try to portray Jesus as this sort of unwitting, unwilling victim. Especially liberal scholars, they would They've reduced Jesus to merely a philosopher, a, a sage, somebody with, with ethical teachings. They would say, hey, he was, he was maybe just a revolutionary who kind of stirred things up and was trying to overthrow the Roman government. But whatever they've made Jesus out to be, they'd say that things went wrong. That inadvertently Jesus crossed the line with the Jewish and Roman authorities and, and sort of accidentally got himself executed. But nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, that's not how John portrays Jesus. The truth is that Jesus wasn't an unwilling victim. Jesus knew as he was going to the cross exactly what he was doing. And not only did he know exactly what he was doing, what he was getting into, but he was in control from beginning to end. If you remember what he said in chapter 10, he he said this. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So, so the death of Christ, far from being an accident, was carried out according to the plan and the will of God. And what's more, our passage shows us that Jesus was in control during all of the events surrounding his death. And it's a reminder to us that even in our most darkest circumstances, there is an occasion for the display of Christ's glory. So, so look with me at chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? In the death of Jesus in general, the betrayal of Jesus in particular, we we see something of his lordship. We see something of the fact that, that Jesus was in control from beginning to end. We see something of his sovereign rule on display. We see a lordship that is clear for all to see, especially as Jesus prepares to take the cup, a cup that the Father has given to him. And to start with, his, his lordship is seen in his surroundings. You look again at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, now the Lord deliberately chose Gethsemane, the, the garden here. In, in John's account, we're not told that it's Gethsemane, but, but uh, it just says that it was a garden. But if you go to Matthew, you go to Mark, and you see their accounts, uh, of this same story, they call it Gethsemane. And that name literally means oil press, which kind of clues us into the fact that this was probably a, a, an olive orchard of some sorts. And we have to ask the question, well, why there? Why did Jesus go there? Well, two reasons, I think. First, um, you get the idea that this was an enclosed place. There, there's some privacy to it. It talks about how they entered. In verse 4, it talks about how they, they left. And so you get this idea that, that this would have been a place where, where Jesus could go and pour out his, his heart to the Father in, in agony as, as he got closer and closer to the cross. We, we see in the other gospel accounts how, how Jesus pours out his heart to the Father. But second, Jesus knew that Judas was looking for. I mean, Jesus just knew 
that Judas was, was, was going to betray him. I mean, after all, in the upper room at the sort of the beginning, you remember he told Judas, hey, you know, what you need to do, go and do it quickly. And Judas, Judas left and started to set things in motion. Jesus knew that was going to happen. It didn't take him off guard. And there's no reason to think that this wasn't a place that him and his disciples often went. Uh, it was his custom to visit the Mount of Olives. And so Judas went here knowing it was a likely place. And, and all the other attempts to to seize Jesus up to this point, have failed. You read in the gospel accounts that they wanted to seize Jesus, they wanted to stone Jesus, and in all these times it says, if you remember, the hour had not come. Jesus said the hour had not come, the hour referring to the cross, but now the hour has come. It's, it's time for the outworking of God's plan. The time had come for Jesus to give his life. And there's perhaps another reason, though, why it's a garden. There's probably a reason why John doesn't say Gethsemane, he says a garden. Perhaps he's trying to draw this, this parallel, this symbolism with another garden. Think of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, the first Adam, began life in the garden, and Christ, the second Adam, came at the end of his life in the garden. The Garden Eden, Adam sinned, and Gethsemane, the Savior, he overcame sin. In Eden, Adam fell, and Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam hid himself, and Gethsemane, Jesus boldly presented himself to the people looking for. In Eden, the, the sword was drawn, but in Gethsemane, it was put away. And so I don't think the symbolism is, is accidental, incidental to Jesus' death. Here we have an assurance, as you and I read this, we have an assurance that Christ was in control. That, and beyond that, John mentions that Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Now, during this time, it was Passover, and there was a drain that ran from the temple altar down to the Kidron Ravine, and, and it would drain away all the blood of the sacrifices. You remember, Passover is a, a big deal. And, and so, so everybody who was within a certain distance would descend upon Jerusalem and there would be sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice that would come. There would be more than 200,000 lambs slain. And so when Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron, it, it, was, it was red with the blood of sacrifice, all preparing for the Lamb who came to be slain for the sins of the world. And so Jesus' Lordship is seen in the surroundings. The very place that He chose was, was not incidental, it was intentional. But not only that, we see His Lordship in the midst of His agony. You see, in between verses 1 and 2, there's a bit of a gap that the other gospel accounts sort of fill in for us. Uh, from, from them, we understand that there was a certain agony, there was really a horror that overcame Christ in Gethsemane. He, he was wrestling with the reality that was coming. The fact that he would suffer and die, and he experienced intense agony, and the scriptures say, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said this, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He, he says that in Matthew's account. And, and, and Mark tells us that Christ repeatedly fell to the ground and, and he prayed that if it was possible that the hour, again, the, the cross, that if this would pass for him, that that would be 
possible. He was in such agony that he would cast himself to the ground, he would stand up, then again fall down to the ground in prayer, and no one, no one has experienced the kind of agony and sorrow that Christ did in those moments. I hope you realize that. I hope you realize that in the midst of your agony and your sorrow, and whatever you're going through, that, that there is a Savior who knows exactly what it's like to walk through a dark valley. Gospel writer Luke says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I mean, incredible. His agony was so great that he actually began to break out into a bloody sweat. And, and, and these and similar verses um, caused, at one point in the second century, a guy named Celsus, a, a heretic really, to argue that this proved that Christ was only a man. And the reasoning was that uh, in what was displayed in the garden is that he couldn't handle it. It couldn't handle it. And other, other people have handled in the midst of, of battle greater things. But, but actually, Christ's agony demonstrates that he knew exactly what was involved. It, it wasn't the pain that caused the horror. It wasn't the shame. It wasn't the eminent desertion of the disciples. Remember, they all sort of scattered at the at the arrest of Jesus, it was the fact that he was going to pay the penalty for our sin. That was the source of his agony. That's what he understood. He understood that, that what was about to be placed on him was the greatest sacrifice of all. And, and this is what caused him to break out into a bloody sweat. This is what caused him to fall to the ground. It was a crushing realization that he would endure the wrath of God the Father. The story continues in verses 2 and 3. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and, and weapons. In reality, is everybody likes to be liked. We all want to be liked. We all want to be loved, and everyone wants to have friends that are faithful and true and, 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 and stick by your side. And, and there's many hurts in this world, but I suppose one of the greatest hurts is, is when you've been betrayed. Well, this betrayal must have stung all the more because we find Judas Iscariot, a man who has witnessed Jesus firsthand say the things he said, do the miraculous works, healing people. He observed the purity of Christ's character and, and he's, he's observed Jesus in all of his splendor and now here he is, he's, he's betraying Jesus. I mean, so often Judas had joined the other 11 disciples to find rest and refreshment in the walls of this garden with, with Jesus. They, they talked together, they prayed together, they, they felt, they experienced, they received the love that Jesus provides. Yet, in the same place where Judas enjoyed this fellowship with Jesus, he traded him for some silver. You might ask, why? Well, the reality is that that was simply the nature of his heart. Centered, Satan entered into his heart. We read about that earlier because 
of the idols and, and the coveting that remained inside of him because here was a person who remained in unbelief. A person who was unrepentant. It, it wasn't that he somehow lost his salvation. The reality was he never had it to begin with. It wasn't that he somehow was a child of God and then fell away. The reality was he was never a child of God to begin with. And the sad thing is if we were given the opportunity apart from the grace of God, apart from the grace of God, we would do the same thing. Judas deserved God's wrath, but but so do we. We share in our very nature, in our very core, that same sort of greed and rebellion and idolatry, and it's only by the grace of God that you and I can believe. And so Judas brought with him a band of soldiers and officers, and they're carrying lanterns and torches, and, and that just sort of makes sense, because if you're going to go arrest someone, if you're going to go see someone, and it's, it's night, um, and even though it was Passover, so there was a full moon, and and it probably wasn't too dark, but, but you can just imagine if you're going to go arrest someone, there's a good chance they're going to flee and maybe run into the mountains or whatnot. And, and so they brought torches and, and weapons and all of that stuff. And, and yet, Jesus had no intention of fleeing. I mean, if he was an unwilling victim, if, if Jesus didn't know this was coming down the pipeline, then certainly things might have been different. But that's not the case. Jesus faces it head on. He displays his lordship even in the midst of confrontation. Look at verses 4 and 6. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I have to ask the question, what, what exactly was going on in, in this scene? I mean, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, went forward. And, and, and that, that, that phrase, went forward, is in the present tense. There's this verb, knowing. It implies in a very real and ongoing sense that, that it weighed upon the mind of Jesus. He knew exactly what was going on. He wasn't walking into the dark, as we so often do when when you and I face decisions, right? We, we live with the unknown at times. When, when we're in the midst of a crisis, we're in the midst of a crossroads, we have to face uh, certain decisions. Jesus wasn't walking into the dark. He walked right into the face of death, and not only death, but the cup of wrath, knowing what it meant. And I would submit to you that this demonstrates the love of God for sinners. I mean, think about it, you don't, you don't see Jesus trying to avoid arrest. He, he understood much more about what would happen than, than all of his enemies put together. They only knew that they wanted to rid themselves of him, and he knew, though, that the redemptive plan of God was being fulfilled, and it would all culminate in him drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. He alone understood this, this hour that laid before him, and 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 the waves of divine wrath that crashed upon him, he knew that, that what he was about to face was the darkest hour anybody could ever face, and he boldly went forward. But if we're honest, that's not like us. Because we tend to avoid pain at 
all costs, don't we? Discomfort, opposition. We want to avoid it. We want nothing to do with it. Most of us will do whatever we can to ensure that things are always lovely and peaceful. And yet what we see is the Lord not hesitating one bit to step forward and face the beginning of what would be the wrath of God poured out upon him. And so if at any moment you doubt God's love for you, you need to to look at the cross. You need to look at what happened there. You need to look at what he did. But if you're going to look at the cross, start in the garden. Because then you'll see. You'll see what he actually went through. Now when Jesus goes forward, he, he asks, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, they answer. And quite simply, Jesus says, I am he. Now, now, then what it tells us is that by him saying that, sort of caused some people to fall to the ground. What's the deal with that? I mean, there's, there's a lot of speculation uh, by, by New Testament scholars. There's, there's a lot of possibilities, but, but let me just put forward what I think is it's clear in the text. Jesus has consistently used the phrase, I am. We've seen that in the Gospel of John. Over and over again, he's, he's using, using that phrase to refer to himself as God. That is the sacred covenant name of God. If you go back to the Old Testament, Exodus 3, you remember the Lord revealed himself to Moses. Moses says, hey, when I talk to people, who should I say you are? And he says, I am that I am. And so to call oneself I am would be, for the Jews, blasphemous because it represented the sacred covenant name of God. In essence, Jesus is saying, I am God. And, and for example, John chapter 8, we saw that Jesus responded to the Pharisees. He said, before Abraham was, I am. There, there's no mistaking that Jesus knew that he was God, that he was claiming to be God. And then you, you sort of follow through, and there's all these I am passages as Jesus reveals himself to be God incarnate, God who took on flesh. He calls himself the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the, the, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, the life, the true vine. All of these, again, referring to that divine name. So he says, I am. And you think, why would anybody particularly a large crowd of soldiers, there could have been up to a hundred soldiers there, fall to the ground in the face of one man who's unarmed. Unless there was something different about him. Unless there was something unusual about him. And, and what I would agree with a lot of expositors who would say that Jesus was opening the window, so to speak, of divine revelation just for a moment, just for a glimpse, exposing his glory to a group of sinners, and it was enough to cause them to fall back. Listen to how Alexander McLaren put it. He said there was for a moment a little rending of the veil of his flesh and an omission of some flash of the brightness that always tabernacled within him. And that, therefore, just as Isaiah, when he saw the king in his glory, said, Woe is me, for I am undone. And just as Moses could not look upon the face, but could only see the back parts, so here, the one stray beam of manifest divinity that shot through the crevice, as it were, for an instant, was enough to prostrate with a strange awe even those rude and insensitive men. 
that one phrase, I am, was enough to reveal just a bit of his glory to them. Now, as the story continues, look at verses 7 through 9, and, and so he asked them again. He says, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. Our, our Lord, in, in the midst of these moments, did not forget any of his promises. Here, he demands for, there's an imperative here, the release of those who are his followers. Jesus said, you came after me, you, you let these people go. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now, the, the immediate preservation was physical. He, he, he saved his disciples from being arrested as well. But there's eternal implications of this. I mean, Jesus has already promised that none of those given to him by the Father would perish. John 17, 12. And now he demonstrates the greatness of his love by caring for his own, even in the face of wrath. Now again, we see something wonderful about the love of God. The love of God is not fickle. The love of God does not change based on the day. It's not that he one day saves us and then another day he changes his mind because of our failure and our sin. He, he loves us in a way that perseveres us to the end. I mean, again, we don't deserve to be preserved any more than we deserve to be saved in the first place. Yet what we find is the overwhelming love of Christ extended to us, picking us up when we've fallen low, carrying us through times of weakness, giving grace to us in times of need, and sustaining us by His mighty power to save. And, and so once again, Jesus is bringing attention to the truth that every person who comes to a genuine saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, will never, never, ever fall from grace. What he finished on the cross on our behalf in bearing the judgment of God against us, he finished and we contributed absolutely nothing to our salvation by our own merit. Christ alone is our righteousness and the one who perseveres us and keeps us to the end. He who started a good work in us will bring it to completion. So the fact that he keeps us to the end demonstrates this, this greatness of his love and the sufficiency, the completion of his work on the cross. You never have to move beyond the cross. It's not that you come to faith in Jesus Christ and then there's something better, there's something more to move on to. No, you and I need to keep coming back to the cross as the place in which we find our sufficiency for all of life. And the great thing is, this is true even in the midst of the times when you and, our, you and I turn our backs on Him, when we move into sin, when we neglect our walks, His love never ebbs, it never changes. Well, the story keeps on going. Look at verses 10 and 11, and here it is that we see Jesus' Lordship also in His submission. There is a submission that happens here. Then Simon Peter, verse 10, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father 
has given me. In Luke's gospel, we see that Judas betrayed the Messiah with a, with a kiss. Slap in the face, if you will. Peter, we've witnessed Peter quite a bit. Peter, Peter doesn't think first. Peter just acts. Peter's like some of us. Peter acts and what happens is the sword comes out and he lunges at Malchus and he swings it, it comes down and probably bounces off the helmet and lops off the guy's right ear. And, and, and maybe like our first instinct is like, yeah, one for Jesus. But what Peter did, Peter did was foolish. What Peter did was, was rash. And, and what Peter did, well, Peter was unknowing that really in the midst of this, he was sort of interfering with the plans of God. I mean, Calvin commented, no thanks to him that Christ was kept from death and that his name was not a perpetual disgrace. I mean, if you can imagine for a moment, had, had Peter succeeded in what he wanted to do and intervene and stop Jesus from being arrested, then uh, where would we be? How would redemption have taken place? How would the wrath of God be satisfied? I mean, then Jesus' words came in, in Luke. He says, no more of this. It's almost as if Jesus said, hey, Peter, don't you understand? I have not fallen into the hands of sinful men, but all of this is by divine design. This is from the Father. It's, it's given from the Father for your salvation. Jesus, Lordship, in control at all times. But I want you to focus on the last verse, last half of verse 11 for a minute. You just can't overlook this. It shapes so much of chapter 18 and chapter 19. It's the cup. What is the cup? The cup which Jesus speaks of here, it has has content to it. It was not a cup of pleasure. It wasn't a cup of delight that the Father offered him. Instead, it was the cup of God's wrath awaiting the sinless lips of Jesus. It was a cup that he was meant to drink in its entirety. So when we take a look at the agony of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was not an agony so much due to the physical suffering that he would face at the cross. Surely that was, that was a concern. Surely he suffered physically, but it paled in comparison to the sense of spiritual suffering and eternal agony that Christ would endure upon the cross. For every person, for every sinner, everything they've ever done, every wrong they've accrued against God, everything that you have done and will do was added up into this cup. And this one cup in this one moment was poured out on the Son. And he was conscious that his death involved a substitution. He knew that the judgment due to sinners would be aimed at him. He knew that he was standing in our place and that the righteousness that God demanded only he could fulfill. Wrath expresses the righteous judgment of God that has been withheld in patient mercy, waiting for the day of being released. I mean, think, of it, think of it this way. Think of the wrath of God like a dam of water. 
like a body of water that's all dammed up and it grows and it grows and it grows and finally one day the dam breaks and all of the water comes gushing forth in destructive power. Because God's wrath awaits. As Romans says, the, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds? And so the fact that his wrath is withheld is, is not evidence that it won't come. Be assured it will come. It's simply evidence of the divine patience inventing his eternal judgment against now, Isaiah described the arrow of God's wrath as, as piercing Jesus Christ on our behalf. Again, Jesus in control. This is the divine plan of God. This has been in the works for all of eternity. In the Old Testament, we, we see it clearly talked about in Isaiah. Surely our griefs he bore himself and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and he was scoured for our healing. Those words carry the weight of judgment being leveled at Jesus, who stood on our behalf, bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows, Afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being, bruised for our healing. These are words of atonement and redemption and life for us. And so this is the cup which the Lord bore for us. It was filled to the brim with eternal weight of God's wrath. And for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, He drank every drop. There was not a drop of God's wrath left. Jesus paid it all. There's something else about the cup. Drinking the cup also meant that he received it from someone's hand. Someone handed him the cup. And Jesus didn't drink the cup of the Jews or the cup of the Romans or the cup of the world. The cup, as he said, which the Father has given to me, shall I not drink it? It was the Father who gave him the cup. It was the Father who hosted his son at the sacrificial table of his wrath. It was the Father who extended the cup to the waiting hands of his own pure, sinless son. The cup contained all the wrath of God, all the pent-up judgment which we deserve for our sins. And so what we see in the garden, for a moment, in that picture offered in, in the Gospels, there we find Jesus with a drawing for a moment. Right, we see this in the other gospel writers. He withdraws for a moment, goes before the Father to the point where he, again, is sweating blood, and we have had at all times agonized over situations. Maybe it's financial or something with your, your kids or the news of, of someone dying, whatever it may be, but our agony is slight when compared to that of Jesus Christ. It's small in comparison to what he took upon himself. John comments that Jesus knew all things were coming upon him in verse 4. He knew it. And yet he still took the initiative. He understood the depth and the weight of the divine wrath towards sinner. And I don't know whether you've given much thought 
to this ourselves, but we have to consider that God created this world in purity and holiness, and yet through the fall, through, through sin entering the world, multitude of sinners that you and I follow in the lineage of, of that sin. We've been inherited that. Our sin is so contrary to the nature and character of God that just one sin, just one sin alone deserves an eternal weight of divine judgment. So consider just for one moment that Adam's one sin, the whole human race because of that fell under judgment. That gives us a bit of an idea of the severity of sin against the backdrop of God's holiness. So what the Father does? He hands to the Son the cup of His wrath. What did Jesus do? Matthew said, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In the agony of that moment, Jesus appealed to the Father. Was there any other way for sinners to be forgiven? Was there any other way for people to be brought into a right relationship with God? Was there any other way to remove the stain and the effects of sin? Was there any way to do away with the enmity that existed between God and man? If the cup passed by the Son, was there any other way for these things to be fulfilled? The Father's will. Well, we find Christ willingly, gladly submitting to the Father's will. He yielded to the host, to, to his own Father, to the one who gave him the cup. It is in the drinking of this cup of the wrath given to him by the Father that you and I have salvation secure. God revealed himself by taking the initiative and providing salvation for sinners. And so we don't, we don't appeal to him on our own basis. We don't come to him with some sort of saving plan. God satisfied the infinite measure of his own wrath through the suffering of His own Son. And so, He took it upon Himself. Lastly, here's what you need to see. You need to see and realize that this cup should have been ours. We deserve the cup of God's wrath. But it's by the grace of God that Christ drank it for us. He drank the cup of wrath that we might drink from his hands, the cup of redeeming life. Drink the cup of God's wrath so that you would not have to drink the same cup for eternity. And so the question before all of us is, have you drunk from his hands? Jesus Christ, in control from beginning to end, knowing what he was doing, he did it and he did it for us that the cup would fall on him and it would not fall on you. And if you believe that, and if you trust in that, it's yours today. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your son, your righteous only son, didn't walk away from the cup, didn't flee from the hour, but instead, he willingly and gladly took the cup and he drank every last drop for sinners. Father, may it be that if, that if we haven't trusted in this, 
if we haven't seen this as sufficient for us to be made right with you, if we haven't come to the point where we believed in this truth, we pray that that would happen now. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.